Design can be found in everything we touch, see and hear. I'm Luke Irwin and I've always been fascinated by making the sometimes rarefied world of design more accessible. This recording is from the By Design talk series created by the Sir John Soane Museum in partnership with me. These talks invite some of the most innovative and well-respected designers of our generation to discuss one everyday object that has inspired their design practice. The interviewers for the series are Will Gompertz, arts editor at the BBC, and Alice Rawsthorne, design writer and critic. These intimate conversations take place in the candlelit dining room of Sir John Soane's museum, bringing to life Soane's long-held ambition to create an Academy of the Arts where all forms of design can be celebrated. Ez Devlin is an artist and designer whose projection-mapped sculptures are often created as environments for performing artists, opera, dance and theatre. Her distinctive works have featured at Somerset House, the Royal Opera House, the National Theatre and the London and Rio Olympic ceremonies. Her stage sculptures include collaborations with Beyoncé, Kanye West and Adele. Here she is in conversation with Alice Rawsthorn. And thank you to all of you for coming to join us this evening. We're very lucky to have Ez Devlin to speak to us about her work and its evolution. Ez is one of the most influential set designers of our time, not just in theatre and opera, but as the go-to designer for rock, rap and pop royalty, from Adele to Kanye West, Beyoncé and Miley Cyrus, um, who has recently extended her practice even further by engaging in more experimental independent projects and we'll be talking about all of those. To begin by giving you a bit of context, Ez grew up in and around Rye on the south coast. Um, She was one of those children who was both a total bookworm and also very creative, constantly making things out of cereal packets, possibly eating more cereal than strictly necessary in order to have cardboard (laughs) to make them. Um, But when it came to leaving school, she enrolled in Bristol University and studied English literature, uh, still a great passion for her. She then did a foundation course at Central St Martins, and while she was there, she was encouraged to study theatre design, so enrolled on the famous Motley Theatre Design course, and by doing so, she discovered something that really distilled all her passions, art, making and literature. She began by working in indie theatre, starting at the Octagon Theatre in Bolton, and then worked in other indie theatres like The Bush in West London, not only designing all the sets herself, but basically making them herself. She apparently um, gave herself a crash course in plumbing to design the set at the Octagon. Um, And however grand she has become, she's never been too lofty not to roll her sleeves up um, and contribute to her own set. So many of you, like me, may have been lucky enough to see Ezra's incredible sets for what's called the um, Sherlock Hamlet, Benedict Cumberpatch's Hamlet at the Barbican. And you will remember an incredible scene where the um, stage is literally full of furniture. Much of that came from Ezra's own home because the Barbican budget had run out. So she literally had to bring her own furniture to get the impact that she wanted. As a designer in the theatre and for opera, 
Eze's love of literature has given her a remarkable ability to combine her practical skills and also her instinctive ingenuity with a very sophisticated understanding of the text to produce some really extraordinary sets. And the same applies to the work she does on even bigger stages in her mega gigs for Kanye West, The Weeknd, and so on. But she has recently experimented with independent projects. Many of you may have seen her red Brexit phobic lions on Trafalgar Square last autumn. Um, she has also engaged in smaller scale but equally interesting projects like collective poetry readings with Hans Ulrich Obrist at the Serpentine Gallery. And as if all of that wasn't enough, she is now reinventing herself as an architect, at least for some of her time, because she won a major competition to design the UK Pavilion at Expo 2020 in Dubai. Um, so S has been invited by the Soane Museum to choose one object that sums up her practice. And having talked about the sort of combination of practical skills, instinct and intellectual acumen that has made her such a phenomenal set designer, in all her work, for me, what really distinguishes it is her incredible ability to distill the content, the message, the narrative of whatever work she's dealing with into images or experiences that synthesize it and sum it up so aptly and so compellingly that they really sort of embed themselves in your memory. So that is your abiding image or sensation that you associate with that work for years to come. And the same applies to her collective poetry readings. I'm sure it will to the um, Expo Pavilion as to her more conventional sets and megatour stages. So over to Ez, who will show us the object that she has chosen to symbolize her practice. Thank you. Thanks, Alice. So, hello, everyone. Thanks for coming. What a lovely room to give a talk in. Um, this is my violin. And Alice and I had a few chats about what we should discuss. But in the end, we thought this was the most uh, Apposite, really. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about this violin. It was made by my mother's father's um, colleague at the school. He was a physics teacher, and his colleague, the carpentry teacher, used to make violins in a grammar school in South Wales. And this, my my grandfather said, I need, you know, can I have a violin for my daughter? She'd like to learn. And this carpentry teacher said, Well, actually, I'm making one right now, and it has this very beautiful back. And this was considered a really good back of a violin because what used to happen is you'd find pieces of old broken violins and basically collage them together. And so my mother had this violin from the age of 11 um, until I was probably about seven when she gave it to me. And it was sort of where I learned the word practice. That's where I first heard the word practice. And what practice meant was spending time in this place, which was sort of... Um, a meditation, a battleground, um, a scene of great entanglement with my parents and a fight with my mother daily on would I practice it or would I not practice it, uh, an encounter with my own limits because I wasn't that good at it. I was quite good but I wasn't great. Um, an encounter with how much I could extend beyond my limits <coughs> if I just grafted. <coughs> so that's what it meant to me as a thing. It then became another thing, it became my little vessel, it became a boat, a sort of aeroplane for me because I was one of four kids and we didn't go on holidays, particularly abroad, we didn't get on an aeroplane or anything like that because back in the 70s and 80s, four kids on an aeroplane, you had to be 
pretty wealthy to do that, so we didn't. And so this was the way that I traveled because I became a member of a youth orchestra. And when I was about, I think 12, I got on a boat, uh, went across to Dordrecht, small town, which was twinned with Hastings near where I grew up in Holland. And that was the first time I'd really left England. Um, so this violin was my, was my little traveling companion as well. And also it was a ticket to a new demographic because I went to a small school in Rye and this took me to hang out with teenagers in Hastings who went to different schools, different type of kids, older kids. So it sort of led me to a lot of places socially and geographically as well as from a point of view of just mental graft and, and, and practical. And it's a physical thing. I mean, I will try now. Forgive me. It's been a while. <laughs> terribly but just the way you feel when you move with an instrument the way you you know this thing it could um yeah you could do a lot and you could be part of a big sound because I was part of big orchestras and I would scratch away at the back I was never that brilliant but I was just part of a bigger sound than myself cut to I just wanted to try and relate I thought it was a lovely invitation from the zone to invite me to think about my practice sort of through the prism of one object this is a sketch that I did um in 2016 and it was sort of a turning point in my practice. I'll talk a little bit about early stuff, but some of you may know a bit about that. So I wanted to, to maybe touch on some, some things you might not know about. Um, Hansel Rick Obrist at the, at the Serpentine Gallery said, would you like to make something um, in the gallery at the party? And I thought this was a rather wonderful invitation um, to be in a gallery making some work. Um, and I said, well, what will it be? And he said, well, you know, there's a whole load of guests turning up and I didn't quite understand, um, you know, how the party worked. It turns out you have to pay to go to the Serpentine party. And I thought that was a little bit weird to have to pay to go to a party. Um, but they explained to me that that kept the art free for others and it was a gala and this was actually a good thing. I said, okay, well, if you're paying to come to a party, can you take something home? And I remembered that the first time I'd been to the Serpentine gallery was to see the work of Felix Gonzalez Torres, who famously, you know, the work was sort of his open heart and you took it, you know, you took the sweets, you took his art. Um, so I said, well, what if you took something away? So I drew this, which was a sort of poem around the pavilion. Francis Carey made a wonderful pavilion that year. Um, and I think I wrote something like, what if we could write a poem that people could spend an evening inside a poem? So that was the thought, if we could make a collective poem. And of course, I had no idea really how to do this. So my first thought was, was there some way that we could make speakers that might resonate a collective poem? Um, so I started to envisage it a bit like this around Francis Carey's pavilion, a whole load of little speakers. Um, and I started thinking about, could they be individual gifts? And I think I had been to a party recently and started maybe slightly drunkenly stealing the table decorations. And I think I might have got spotted doing it and got in a bit of trouble anyway. So I said to them, well, look, what, what if people took the decorations away at the end of the night? And what if it was these individual little speakers? And of course, it was all too hard and too expensive. So in the end, we made up this little booth, a very demure little mirrored booth. But what happened inside it was that you were able to donate a word. You were invited to don donate one word. 
Um, and it went through an algorithm trained on 25 million words of 19th century poetry. And you each were given a little printed portrait of yourself with a two-line poem that had instantly been made. And then this thing became a collective poem that carried on uh, all evening. Um, and I realized that perhaps one of the reasons I had been drawn to make such a, a piece was because I'd spent perhaps the last you know, 10 to 15 years now in environments like this, in large scale, sometimes 100,000 strong audiences watching pop concerts. And there's something completely uh, precious and particular about being with 100,000 people all singing the same song. I'm sure it's what you feel when you attend a, a big football match, which I don't do. But you know, it's that feeling of the whole room being in concert, um, all singing together. So I think it's a way of somehow channeling this quality of, of resonance. And I guess that drawing that I did of sort of resonant, ever-increasing waves from a point somehow relates to what I learned about this little piece of wood and catgut and metal, that from these very basic ingredients, you could actually make a sound far greater than yourself and far greater than your own talents. Um, I also used to draw the violin quite a lot, actually. I liked the shape of it. And I studied art at a time at school where one was invited to do a lot of still life. And most people, you know, you had an egg or you had a, you know, a cauliflower and complicated things like that. And I, I, I think I learnt quite a lot about my violin just by drawing it. So that work then took the form of this piece, which was at the V&A Museum um, in 2017, the following year, using the same technology, again, gathering everybody's individual words, making this time a collective Christmas carol out of them. I mean, it was a carol. Um, it resonated from this central floating body of uh, projected text at the V&A. And then, it, yes, as uh, Alice mentioned, <coughs> I felt compelled last September, so this is 2018, one a year, <coughs> to see what I could do with something that had been silent for 150 years, one of these lions in Trafalgar Square. So the same <coughs> poem technique was used to enable you to donate one word to this lion, feed it effectively, and every evening its collective poem um, was projected up Nelson's column. Um, and in fact, we're going to bring it back. That's coming back. That was my word. <laughs> and in case anyone was any, in any doubt. <laughs> and then, yes, th this train of thought then followed on with some sketches. I find myself in quite an interesting position making some work that is clearly voicing my feelings about the way our government is um, operating at the moment and also working with the government. Um, because these were the first sketches for a competition to represent this country um, at a World Expo, which is an odd thing to do right now. Uh, and I found myself tasked with how do, how do I represent this country? But then I thought, well, actually, if at any time it's needed to draw the strands of 2020 together and make something positive out of it as an expression of this country, now's the moment. And I thought it was very important to make a sculpture on which you could not put a Union Jack. I thought that was quite important. In the end, the spirit of that poem, uh, the collective poem, is now expressed in a piece of architecture. Because what will happen with, with this uh, building is that you will, as you're walking up a queuing system effectively, a labyrinth, you'll be um, able to donate your own word. And the individual words will flash up one by one here at the end of this. And then at the other end, the collective poem 
It's sort of a, a wooden resonant cone-shaped musical instrument itself. And inside you'll see words in multiple languages flickering up in a cacophony, surrounded by a, quite a cacophonous overlapping soundtrack of multiple choirs from all different cultures. In some ways, this, this sort of sense of playing with collective um, resonance is, is playing out there. And then another thing happened in 2016, as well as being invited to, to try to think of something to do at the Serpentine, and that led to that whole sort of three-year sprint, really. Another invitation came, which was an odd one, in that I, I don't think I read it properly, but I think what it really wanted me to do was to do a perfume advert. I sort of read what I wanted to read into the email, and I thought it said, would you like quite a lot of funding to make your first large-scale immersive sculptural artwork? <laughs> That's what I thought it said, mainly because I wanted it to say that. And I do, I do, it is one of my great sort of learnings over the past few years that willfully misreading emails has got me into quite good situations. And I would invite all of you, whenever you have the opportunity, if you want to read something into an email that isn't there, then just try it because I've tried it a few times and it's working so far. I'm going to get rumbled soon. Um, however, basically what had happened is I had been working on a, a, a big opera in Copenhagen, a, a wonderful, cunning little vixen. And I was very pleased with myself because it was all layers of paper cut, projection mapped. And then I went to see The Life of Pi, a rather wonderful film, that evening. And I kind of realised that the state of my art was very, very Neanderthal compared to these extraordinary... Uh, 3D graphics that were being made and I had a sort of crisis. I thought why am I bothering with these hand cut little projection mapped objects when there are people making you know extraordinary layers of tigers um, and then I, I asked myself well what would have been how could Life of Pi have been better and I thought well if they'd cut a hole in it if you could have had a hole in the screen and something real come out or if I could have walked through the screen if the film could have had a hole in it However great the film is, a film with a hole in it would have been even more extraordinary. So I made a film with a hole in it, uh, which was this. It was um, a film about somebody <coughs> making something, um, a woman making something, and it had a hole in it. So once the film had finished, you could walk through the film into the world that you'd already seen being conjured. And you walked through the hole in there, and you ended up in this environment that you'd seen a pair of hands making. And this was in Peckham in a rather um, unexpected environment, let's say. And it had sort of drawn from this model that I'd made you know, probably 10 years earlier. <coughs> and there's something of the resonating chambers in that, something of the whispering galleries, something of sound getting caught. And I, I'd actually, I started looking up the word resonance recently. And it turns up in everything. I mean, people in this room will know much more about it than I do. But I realized that laser beams are made from the constant amplification of the strength of a light beam from a resonant cavity. Um, and that magnetic resonance um, imaging um, is how we understand everything we do about the human mind. So something of these mazes might also be derived from that instinct. And these were some of the mazes that continued out of that spell of work. And finally, I just want to touch on an, another strand that might be interesting, um, which might relate back to this object. The thing about this object is, effectively, it's this piece of wooden crafted, very finite stuff. It's solid. Someone's you know, compressed an awful lot of life into that thing. And this is a, a puzzle box. And I was fascinated with these things when I was a child. Something to do with the way that you know, a great expanded number of parts could be tessellated and perfectly fit back together. 
and quite a bit of my practice. But anything that has these cupboards that open up and everything goes back into a perfect shape, uh, I don't know if it's control freakery or if it's just every human, but I, I find these things compelling. In combination with this piece of work I want to mention, this is a, a piece by the wonderful artist Rose Finkelsey, and it was on at the Chisholm Hale Gallery in 1994. And it was one of the first um, exhibits I saw when I was a student. And I've never forgotten it. Um, and I think it's run pretty much <coughs> through everything I make, which is this compression, this holding of energy between two surfaces, uh, this somehow, the entirety of everything, everything that one wants to say, everything that one needs to reach to, will be stronger if somehow there's a container um, against which it can um, reverberate. And in some of the early uh, dance work I made, this was a compression of light. This is from a long time ago, 1998, but it was all about, it was actually a version of the Canterbury Tales and it was based on stained glass windows. But really, it was just me squeezing light. That's all I really wanted to do at the beginning. And it was quite unfortunate for the people who were working with me who wanted to tell a story about rural island or something, or a story about a, you know, a chicken factory, because all I cared about was squeezing the light. And I was like, OK, that'll be a, a squeezing light situation. I, I found good reasons to squeeze the light um, and compress it and see what energy it brought uh, from any invitation, really. I guess I've been willfully misreading scripts and emails for a long time, it turns out. This was a very early one that, that um, was really a, a bit of a play on mirrors. It was a version of Macbeth. And that table actually is a half table. It was a sort of John Lennon half piano idea. This is mirror here, and that's half a table. And this box, it was back, it was sort of a, an early version of this box idea, the puzzle box, but it kept turning. And every time it turned, a different half object. And then finally, the half object split. And an infinity of people emerged. <coughs> and you couldn't really work out where they'd come from, because they came from between two mirrors, but then they were infinitely reflected. Um, so those kind of experiments. And again, this idea of, this was Carmen with Sally Potter in 2007, this idea of, how can I communicate this person at scale for the 5,000 people in this Colosseum? and yet compress around the human <coughs> figure to the extent that they actually have some, somewhere for their energy to actually expand within and to be amplified. And then this is the Chimerica piece that Bruce mentioned earlier, which was, I guess, a sort of more virtuosic version of some of those earlier ones, just now getting into my stride a bit. And it was an object that turned and turned and kept revealing and concealing different fragments, sort of filmic fragments. And I guess, I mean, one of the things I think it's worth mentioning is that the time when I was studying to be a stage designer was a time when British film really had so little funding, I think, that so many of our playwrights probably wanted to write films. I think Joe Penhall wanted to write films. I think Sam Mendes wanted to make films. But I think the opportunities for making films at the time were quite limited. So it meant that an awful lot of the scripts that I would read were really film scripts. So I was faced with a really interesting proposition with, I'm dealing with literally, you know, the objects, the wood, the metal, the sellotape and string, the mirror, you know, the stuff that won't be edited will have to transform before your eyes in a room. But I'm trying to express the filmic cut, the dissolve, um, you know, the montage. So I think that's what led me perhaps to develop some of this more filmic language. Coming back to, to the violin, just feeling how one breathes through a piece of wood. Um, and just knowing that when you're working with some of these singers and they are going to 
you know, travel the world with the big object that you place around them on stage? How do you give them something they can actually breathe through? How do you sort of get through the clamor of, you know, the rigging and the metal and the steel and the truss and the LEDs and the countless numbers of crews? So my, my guess, my practice has been to try to make these things genuine playable instruments for the artists and to keep playing between the scale of human-sized human and resonant um, icon-sized image, really. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, in another register, in a sort of fun, comical pop art register, trying to work out how to spew an organic through a metallic in some way. And I think lastly, just to touch on <coughs> coming back to the opera world, having been working a little bit on a grander scale in pop, um, this was at the Bregenz Festival Opera, which has been my real dream to, to work in this. It's, it doesn't happen very often, it's every two years. And something about it, because I think perhaps the whole object is a set of speakers. It conceals thousands of speakers within it. Um, it is the voice, effectively, of those performers, um, which is, I think, what really distinguishes it. Um, and a few more here of communicating through uh, an origami object, coming back to those puzzle boxes, coming back to things which, um, you know, can permeate and fluctuate. And uh, yeah, back to the, ha back to that royal, back to that Union Jack. Um, I won't go on about it too much, but it is, it's one of those things that we grapple with. And I felt during, I did feel during the Olympics that we shifted our attitude towards our flag, actually. Um, I remember Googling it before when, when I was asked to make a Union Jack stage design, I said, well, that seems like a really bad idea. Why would you invite the countries of the world to see on your own flag? But the invitation then to Damien Hirst to say, can we just colour one of your paintings, red, white and blue? Then at least it'll have this, the anarchy of, uh, you know, of the Sex Pistols cover. Um, it'll have sort of the ebullient sort of champagne cork celebration of a Britpop thing. And actually, you know, through the Olympics, we did, I think, come to terms with that symbol a bit. I think that's probably all I need to show for now. We could sh should move on to questions. Haven't we? I've got a few more on model cities, but we could come back to that. Or, do you want, or shall I show them? Go on, show Shall I carry cities. on? <laughs> yeah, yes. carry on? Okay. Um, so I have exhibit A. This is my dad. <laughs> and uh, my parents um, moved to Rye in Sussex when I was about six years old. And I think six years old is quite an important time. And this was the model of Rye, which was at the bottom of our street. And I think our house was, I'm not sure where it was it, Dad, it was bad. That's the church, so it's somewhere like there or something. But um, you used to go every Saturday and they would tell stories. It was like a sonnet lumiere. And um, each house would light up when you heard a story. So in my head, architecture and stories were sort of inextricably woven. Uh, and then, of course, later on, I read the Memory Palace of Matteo Ricci and I read all the Francis Yates books on the arts of memory. And I realise, I'm sure you all know this, but that the Globe Theatre was designed by Shakespeare to the rules of a memory palace. So the pillars are each different colours. There are specific paintings on the walls to help the actors remember their lines. So he you know, designed specific speeches towards the green pillar or other ones towards the bust of you know, Horatio or whatever it was. And that's how you know, they remembered things. So this was very innate to me. It wasn't so much something. I learnt it later, but I sort of knew it. Um, and I think also when you're a child, I've noticed this in my own children, when you show them something that's at scale, they can hold very easily in their heads 
their own real scale and the scale they would have to be to fit in a small object. So they, I don't know if everyone's <coughs> experienced this, they feel it, find it very natural that they could fit in a doll's house, even if they might not be able to. So I kind of thought I was already in my house and watching my house at the same time. So it, it seemed quite normal at the time. Um, <laughs> so this strain of work has been prevalent in, in various, you know, willful readings of scripts. It's found its way <coughs> into, into operas and uh, theatre. But recently, as Alice mentioned, I've been making uh, work that's just because I, just really because I want to make it. This was an invitation to um, work with Bjark Ingels on, uh, he's made a very beautiful uh, building called the 11th, which is two gorgeous twisting towers in New York. It's again exploring these memory cities, these memory palaces, these organisational um, modes that we have. It looks like an oyster or a brain. Uh, once it's sort of found its resonant um, mirrored image, it also makes noise. It's a sort of instrument itself. I guess, I hope I've shown a bit of a path from this object in wood and uh, catgut and steel resonating away to some of the work that's happened over the following 25 years. Well, that was brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> well, Es Delightfully has done most of my work for me, so I'm going to ask her a few questions, but then there'll be an opportunity for you all to pitch in and ask her questions yourselves. So if we pick up resonance, which brilliantly you drew on from the violin to your work as it's evolved over the years. What I'm interested in is the eclecticism of your practice is incredibly intense and is becoming more so as you're given more and more opportunities and also opportunities to really define your own path. So what I'm interested in is how you've applied your design sensibility on different scales and different contexts. So when you started, you were working in indie theatres, tiny budgets, small stages, there are a few resources. You then moved into sort of posh, respectable theatre and then onto the mega stage of, of the mega gig. What difference has that transition in scale made to your ability to communicate so clearly and, and compellingly? I mean, it's interesting. Can I take one step back? Yeah. And I'm going to answer that question about the transition from small scale, medium scale theatre to large scale rock concerts. But I'd like <coughs> to just perhaps, because I thought you were going to ask a different question, I'd like to ask, answer the question that you didn't ask me. Um, <laughs> which is. <laughs> question. No, I will answer that just one. Just like the email. It's only that I think, I think the question I think was the point of choosing. Often it's quite an interesting point is why does one choose given there are eclectic avenues to be chosen why does one choose even the first one um, so before talking about the transition from theatre to opera even that first decision um, to do theatre in the first place wasn't actually that straightforward I didn't really know what I wanted to do to be honest and I was waiting to walk I think I was just waiting to walk into a room where I felt at home uh, where I felt I was among my kind and I was among people who were like me or who I you know, I'm going to keep using this word resonance now as a kind of catch thing, but who, who I felt, you know, were my people, I guess, or who I felt I breathed the same air as in some way or something. So having tried that in various different places, in art schools, in um, English degrees at universities, and, and met lots of, found lots of overlapping parts of a Venn diagram, lots of common denominators, lots of common interests, but not quite that 
sort of animal, <laughs> whatever animal I was, I was looking for that cage or that pen in the safari park. So having found that, as you say, in the, the smaller scale theatre and sort of then just working a bit like with the violin, just then just grafting, literally, you know, grafting, writing letters, going to see plays. I mean, really sort of shamelessly, to be honest. Um, and that's what sort of led to then moving on to the National Theatre and the Royal Shakespeare Company. That transition then into the larger scale pop work, oddly, it came from three places at once within the same year. So there was uh, an invitation, a wonderful Lebanese English pop singer called Mika. He had seen, there was a South Bank show about an opera we were working on, Salome, at the Royal Opera House. And he had seen that. And I was actually very pregnant when I was working on that. And the, uh, the wonderful director, David McVicker, started shouting at me and saying my work was rubbish and chucking bits around. And I just stood there apparently and all I did was flinch. I just flinched and I just was very pregnant. I flinched and I just carried on. And Mika saw this and said, I want someone who (laughs) would just flinch when I change my mind about things. (laughs) So um, having earned the right to flinch when pregnant, I, I, I then made my first, literally diving right into the deep end of a huge scale uh, one-off stadium concert for him. And I had no idea what the rules were. To be honest, I hadn't been to that many concerts. Didn't go to concerts that much. So I really dived in and thought, well, you know, how can this thing not be what it usually is? Um, and then at the same time, Kanye had seen some work, that little piece I showed you from a band called Wire um, with those four faces. He had seen that and wanted a, uh, an arena show. And the Pet Shop Boys I had worked with on a theatre project and they wanted an arena show as well, or a theatre show. So three different scales, three different pop artists, all kind of at once around sort of 2000 and really around 2006 to eight, I guess. And I guess uh, I went in with utter ignorance and certainty, um, as you do, and, tr- and tried to react against a lot of the things I'd seen in pop concerts and found that that was actually really difficult because the nature of those <laughs> concerts is that they are, they're more like circuses really, they're, or armies. They're 300 mainly men on tour, you know, having their lunch in a big catering environment, getting on the bus together, throwing, you know, getting this thing up in a, you know, 20, you know, sometimes eight hour turnaround. So I was faced with much harder parameters, much more um, brutal parameters, really. So I found I had to take a hit on the detail that I was used to working with. And I think that might have put quite a few people off who were used to working with quite a fine sense of finish and detail and craft in the work. But I kind of thought best to work with it because I really enjoyed being out in the crowd and feeling, you know, 20,000 people singing around me and seeing the object behave. So it took a while. I made a few that, you know, really showed, you know, the long limbs of just having uh, tried to walk in this environment. (coughs) But after a while, learnt to work with the parameters rather than keep busting against them, I would say. So which was the first project where you thought you'd sort of got that? I'm waiting for that one. <laughs> They're always a terrible compromise, the pop concerts. <laughs> but, I mean, you not only were you making this huge leap in scale and also medium, because you've been within, uh, you may have been shouted out while heavily pregnant by um, opera directors, but you were in a sort of respectable 
medium of the conventional theatre, conventional opera, conventional dance, you were also moving to a completely different audience. I mean, generally, when people have paid a small fortune and taken out their second mortgage to go th to the theatre in London, they focus on what's happening on the stage. The photograph you showed of the mega gig was particularly telling because most people were either taking photographs or only seeing the gig through the prism of their phone and others weren't. So you really entered that arena at a time when the audience was becoming increasingly feral. They were seeing, <laughs> they were seeing the work in different ways. They were recording it as it went along and that is from many people a hugely important emotional component of any experience now so how did you respond to that as a designer i, th I think that's so true I and mean, i think it's true that working in theater when theater was trying to be film and then working in pop concerts and pop concerts were just learning that they were actually part of a collective 360 degree camera uh, experience it was an apposite time to enter that uh, arrangement and actually when i first started making pop concerts there weren't people didn't have camera phones that came later. And it's true that, you know, the audience full of phones is one of the protagonists in the whole thing. And the way that the multi-angle picture of that concert is shared is now a critical part of it. And it's a terrible thing to say, but actually I do think quite consciously about the photographs of the work, because it's a weird thing, but people in the audience, some of them want to take the photograph they've seen. So it behoves you to work out what photographs are takeable. And then, of course, on the other hand, there's an absolute liberty to it because the photographs will be whatever they are. And the collaged experience of what people see uh, makes it sculptural, you know, it makes it not proscenium theatre, it makes it visible from every language. And there's a, an absolute democracy to that. And it's, you know, it's, it's now part of what one is sculpting. And, and the fact that that sea of people with their phones is now what I'm bringing into my own work I think sort of reflects the interest I have in it. I think often the concerts are very interesting when you're not facing the stage. They're very interesting, you just face the audience. So can you explain in practical terms how you designed the physicality of a set to take account of that phenomenon? There's a cr critical piece which is some, some, some very conservative practices have grown up in pop, cult, pop concert design which is there's this uh, practice of having two screens either side of the event called IMAG screens, which are there so that you can make art supposedly in the middle and the audience will be satisfied because if ever they want to see a picture of their pop star they've paid good money to come and see, they can just look at what we call the image magnification, the IMAG screen. But what I realised is that was just peripheralizing the audience's engagement. You know when you're in a theatre when something goes off, you know when something happens, you know when there's a connection made and it wasn't being made because people were looking over at the side and not, you know, even if you were right by the stage you'd look at that camera screen rather than looking at the artists themselves. So in practical terms the first thing I started doing with, with women particularly with the female <coughs> protagonists is to try and centralise that so there's only one image of Adele or Beyonce and it's behind them and it's centered on them. So you have to, with the same um, viewpoint, look at the, the giant um, icon of them and the human of them at the, same, at the same time. So that's the first piece, really. And uh, another shift you had to make was being in a relatively small scale environment where you could have complete physical 
control, perhaps not as much as you had when making or plumbing the set yourself at the Bolton Octagon, to these huge, you know, as you said, hundreds of people working on the construction crew, to incredibly tight health and safety regulations, time deadlines in terms of getting it up and getting it down so they don't have to pay a fortune to rent another day and so on. So how did that affect your work in that you presumably had relinquished some level of control, um, which you desperately needed to claw back as a designer? Yeah, I mean, the, that's a, a really important point because the, those pop tours do work a little bit like sort of medieval feudal hierarchies, really. Because <laughs> there's a king or a queen who can be somewhat um, whimsical, let's say, um, and in, in their, you know, they might wake up having read a magazine or having seen something the day before that they like. They might, go, they might, they might have seen something shiny. What you're really dealing with is a lot of the, the musicians that one works with, they are used to dealing in music which is of course this most endlessly malleable thing. So you can change a track, you can change the levels on a track, you can change the mix of a track. Um, so trying to mediate between a musician's um, understanding of malleability of material and the 300 crew and all their ground <coughs> plans and the you know, mechanical engineers uh, and the safety and the risk assessments view of what is malleable, which means it all had to be delivered three months ago. Uh, and I'm often finding myself sort of the mediator and the translator between those two languages. Uh, and often that means just some very difficult situations where you know, an idea has changed overnight as if it were just adding another trombone onto a track, but actually, or subtracting a few harps or whatever it might be. But actually what that means is I need to go and say, well, actually the stage is now square instead of round and it's 10 foot tall instead of, you know, whatever. Some quite radical changes often happen quite quite suddenly. <coughs> in terms of my own control, really when there's a, that kind of hierarchy, ultimately one doesn't have it. You know, what, the, way to have, the way to allow that sort of fluidity of expression that's like with the violin, I guess, is just to have good ideas. Because my, me saying it's my idea within that feudal hierarchy environment doesn't really count for much. It's more the idea's good. It's in, it has to be incontrovertibly good to survive, really. And can you talk about your relationship to the content that you're working with? I mean, this series of talks began with the graphic designer Peter Saville, who's best known for the album sleeves he designed for Joy Division and New Order in the 1980s, where famously he designed almost all of them without having heard any of the music. You know, for Peter, it was an opportunity to express himself, which he did brilliantly. And people like me have post-rationalized the relevance of his work to the material when really there was none. <coughs> And yet it seems to me you have a middle ground because clearly you have used your work relentlessly as an opportunity to experiment, whether it's with forms of visual expression that attracted you at the time or new technologies. And yet I know you do feel a deep responsibility to the content and its creator. So can you talk about that um, and how it's affected your design and perhaps influenced the desire for independent production. Yeah, I mean, it, it is it is both of both as you describe because, it, in fact, I'm very I've become more and more interested in ideas that I wouldn't have had myself. Coming back to the violin, you know, so much of what learning the violin, you play music that you might not like. You play music you find tedious. You find music play music you don't find interesting. Um, but you have to sort of learn to breathe its to its pulse in a way. Um, and it's 
a terribly brilliant, I think, lesson and practice just in learning to breathe to the rate of someone else's thinking. Um, and, and actually, even with the violin historically, you know, you're, you're actually playing to a time beat on a metronome that doesn't exist anymore. We don't live to that beat of Mozart or Haydn anymore. So if you have to transfer yourself into it, th- I find it t- terribly helpful. And I've, I've found it really useful to have to think in a register that's not native to me at all. That's, and what I've learned, I used to resist much more. I used to, if someone came up and said, well, I think this should all be pink clouds, and I could see it in my head straight away <coughs> that this idea was very bad, and that this would be a bad thing to do, and it was nothing to do with my plan and nothing to do with what I'd stayed up all night making. But actually, as I've got older, I now relish uh, when people say, well, let's do this. And I, I, I do genuinely see it as a challenge to myself to either... What I never do really is say that's a bad idea to anyone, any, any collaborator. What I tend to do is try to come up with a better one along the path I was already thinking, or try and grapple with whatever I've been presented with um, and, and turn it around. <coughs> I'll try and work with it in some way, because I find more interesting results have come. I've, I've just found more interesting results have come that way. On the other hand, there's a sense of responsibility now more than any, any time before, really, that after many years of working, I've just about scrabbled together a kind of thesis of some things I want to say. So now's the time to start making my own work, which I, I just took my time gathering those thoughts, So really. what are those things? I want to speak a lot about um, memory. I want to talk about... I want to bring in quite a palatable way to audiences in a, in a feelable way, um, this spirit of... Uh, memory palaces that I think we all sort of know about in a rather uh, academic way but I'm not sure we've quite felt them in the way that I felt them as a kid so I want to continue working with that. I'm very interested in the collective poetry uh, work that you know over three years we've been refining how good say the group of people in this room right now you all got your seats these are your seats because you bought a ticket and that's your seat Um, and yet we're in a collective space but if I said, well, you can't have that seat anymore, I'm swapping it with someone else, then suddenly it wouldn't feel so collective anymore. You know, there's, the, the, the nature of theatre is it's a collective environment to a degree, but it's still based on the property of your seat. This is your seat. So I'm really interested in kind of exploring that a little bit and also seeing what can be made with a group of people together. Because I do think more and more the experience of gathering as live, actual, organic algorithms is uh, getting more and more unusual. Um, especially when I, I observe my children and myself and all of us um, in, the, in the way that we're operating. So I think even more precious than when I started 25 years ago is this sort of what we're doing right now and gathering together in a room. So I want to keep trying, trying to unearth a little bit more what's at the heart of that rather than just taking it for granted when we go to a theatre. Can you talk about your, the sort of logistics of your working practice? First of all, how you develop ideas. I mean, some designers sketch constantly, and then when they have a project, thumb through the sketchbooks, identify interesting and relevant things, adapt them. Others respond to a brief or develop their ideas in a completely different way than drawing. And also what your setup is in terms of your studio and the kind of people you work with there. So I'll describe the studio. It's a room probably not dissimilar, so from about here to there, a bit lower, not so pretty. Um, And uh, there are about nine people in there working with me on a daily basis. They are mainly trained as architects. A couple of people have been trained in theatre, but predominantly architecture. And some of them have been with me for 10 years, some of them eight, some of them fewer. I tend to 
bring an idea in, uh, sketch it, and then brainstorm it, share it, and they communicate it in drawings and through uh, 3D renderings and animations, things that I have no skill in. I, have, I can just about do Photoshop, that's about it, uh, and I can draw. Um, and the ideas often don't tend to sort of come from scrapbooks of ideas. They literally come from collisions between different things. I'm normally working on about 15 things at a time, and that might be, some of them might not happen for five years. Some of them, about probably about a fifth of them fall by the wayside and never happen, of the things I work on. So they really cross-fertilise. So something I'm halfway through a thought on might change course, but that path of thinking might leap and pollinate and you know, uh, migrate to a different project. So the ideas are very live, and I'm very un, unafraid, I guess, of ideas starting off exactly the same uh, across five or six different projects. So there might be a music project, a gallery project, and a theatre project, which all start with the same sketch. And in the end, you, you would see the threads, but you wouldn't be disappointed if you went to see all three, because they end up, the, the process itself um, ends up shifting. And I've sort of made a, a conscious choice at this point to not strive for each project to have to explore something different. I'm almost happy to just keep exploring that bloody box until it stops giving. <laughs> you know, I'm happy to keep turning a box and see, see how deep I can get with it. Uh, and it's interesting because I sort of, yeah, keep exploring the same shape across a variety of media at once. Thank you so much for the great questions, for being such a lovely audience, and huge thank you to Ez for being such a great speaker. <laughs>